Okay, it is really, really good to be here um, and not there. So thank you very much. Um, and uh, we are, as we said, we're finishing this series on origins today. And what we've done is as we've gone through the book of Genesis, we've seen a whole load, we've really built the series around characters and looked at Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and then gone through Noah and then Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Esau, Judah and Tamar, Joseph, Leo, Rachel, Esau. Like it's been a, a whole load of characters. But what we're going to do this week is actually conclude the series by looking at the main character in the book, which is God. Because this book's really about God more than anything else. And there are a lot of human beings that we've looked at, and a lot of them are a mess, and we've seen God bring hope and purpose and redemption in their story. But what we're going to see today is the way that the real actor in all of these stories is actually God. And so we're going to try and pull together all of those threads into one, and also pick up on a couple of stories that we've left hanging and didn't have time to look at in the rest of the series, because... You've got 50 chapters and 12 slots of half an hour, so it's not very long. So I'm going to try and bring in a couple of other stories, and our text this morning will be Genesis 18. So if you can turn to Genesis 18, that'd be great, but we're going to look at the whole of the rest of the book as well. And a way of introducing it, I'm reading The Horse and His Boy to my eight-year-old son at the moment. Just started it recently. It's one of the Narnia stories, and it's a story about a boy called Shasta and his talking horse who go on an adventure to try and reach Narnia, the, the sort of land where Aslan is. And they are on their way, they get chased by lions, they have to do a river crossing, they get harassed by these other characters, they have this guy who's trying to capture them. And they eventually make it, and towards the end of the story, they meet, for the first time, they meet Aslan, who's the lion, and he's the Jesus figure in the stories. And there's this wonderful moment as they realize, in conversation with him, that it was him all along who was bringing them to this point, but they didn't realize he was. And he says, Aslan says this to them. He says, I was the lion who forced you to join with Aravis. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear so that you could reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you don't even remember who pushed the boat in which you lay as a child near death so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. It's a beautiful revelation in the story as they realize, all this time we thought you were enemies of ours who were trying to kill us, and actually now we see that it was you working all things for good so that we might reach this place of safety. And there's something of that in the book of Genesis. As we read it as a whole, we think, oh, you were, it was you, it was you, it was you all along. And we didn't see it. We, we were living in these stories ourselves and didn't notice that actually it was God bringing us to this place. And there are, that's, that's Genesis. You're continually seeing God at work and then realizing later, oh, this was actually about him. Another kid's book I really like, the Jesus Storybook Bible. I love this. It's a, a, a basically a kid's Bible that shows you how each story is connected to the revelation of Jesus in the gospel. And it's brilliant. You do Genesis that way, and the, the strapline is every story whispers his name. And you do Genesis that way, you think, wow, all of these stories are about God and what he's doing, even if we haven't seen how they are. And so we're going to be in Genesis 18, seeing how that that sense of, it was you, and we didn't know it all along, is, is something that characterizes this whole book. We see it in Genesis 1, in the start. We have been using these images and so on as we've gone through the series. But at the start, as God creates the heavens and the earth, 
We've seen God revealed there. It was you and we didn't know it. Because although we knew that the world was created by God, what we may not have noticed was that when God created the heavens and the earth, the the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God, the Spirit, and the Word through whom he created. In the first three verses of the Bible, we go, it was you, God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You were there. We see later on in Genesis chapter 1, let us create man in our own image. And we want to go, who's us? Who's our? That's again, we read and see something of the three-in-oneness of God, even in Genesis 1, 26, when he's making human beings. It was you. But human beings fall. So God gives the promise that shapes the rest of the book of Genesis and the rest of Scripture and the rest of history. And he says to the snake, I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring, your seed and her seed, And your seed will strike the heel of her seed, but her seed will strike the head of your seed. And that promise of the snake crusher, the one who will come and destroy sin and death, then dominates the rest of the biblical story as we've seen. And we see in Genesis that as we go on, and there's a family tree in here, which we've been going back to a couple of times in the the account. And as we've looked at the family tree, we've seen it sort of gradually narrowing the field of who the seed is. So you remember this? We've seen this as we've gone. You know, we say, who is the seed? Where is this snake crusher going to come from? going to come from Abraham, and then Isaac, not Ishmael, and then Jacob, not Esau, and then through Judah, through Perez, and so on. So the Bible begins to kind of narrow the laser-like focus of its attention onto the seed, who it will be. And as the Bible continues, we see that happening more and more. And as we read through Scripture, we think, oh, he's going to be descended from Ruth and Boaz. He's going to be descended from David. He's going to be born in poverty, in Bethlehem, to a virgin young woman. And more and more revelation gets pieced together until we conclude, oh, okay, the snake crusher, Abraham's seed, Judah's lion, they are all one and the same, King Jesus. And that's the big story that we've been tracing as we've gone through. But we've actually seen quite a few in the, if you like, little stories that are pointing to Jesus as well, or they're not little stories, but you know what I mean, little ways in which stories represent Jesus. And one of the ones we saw is right near the beginning in Adam and Eve. I don't know if you noticed this, but it's quite an amazing statement. Adam and Eve, if you like, humanity in the story are created on day six, which is Friday. And if you like, you know, Saturday is the Sabbath day. So they're created on the Friday, and God, if you like, says, behold, man. And then he says to creation, this is your king, these two. Male and female, you're kings. You guys have dominion over all of this. And then thousands of years later, we find Jesus, the true image of God, being placed in front of a crowd. And we find another person, in this case Pilate, saying, Behold the man. And then saying to everybody listening, Here is your king. And there's an echoing, on a Friday, there's an echoing of one story in the other, and we're supposed to see the connections between them. We find the same thing in Genesis chapter 3 with the story of the fruit. That Adam and Eve say to the snake, I want to be like God, crunch. And then we find Jesus saying to the snake, I am God, crunch. And we see that echoing again and again in the rest of the scriptures. We find it in Genesis 4, which we saw with Phil a few weeks back. The story of Cain and Abel, in which Abel is killed, though innocent, by his brother. And Cain's, uh, Abel's blood cries out for, for judgment and justice and inaugurates a reign of death that continues through time. 
Jesus, though innocent, is killed by his brothers out of jealousy. And his blood cries out not for justice and judgment primarily, but for mercy. And it inaugurates the reign of life that will continue through the rest of time. You find it in the story of Noah. Noah's family go into the ark and are saved through their faith in Noah and the ark through judgment, through water. And we, like Noah's family, are saved through our faith in Jesus. We get, if you like, into him and are saved from judgment through water in baptism. We find it with the story of the Tower of Babel, that the nations exalt themselves and build a tower. And as a result of that, they are divided and scattered. And we see that in Christ, particularly at Pentecost, the nations come to finally to exalt God and then are united and gathered. And we picked up on that in our Invited series as well. And as we go into the story of the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs just means fathers, we find revelations and shadows of God all over the place. We think this story is again and again, this is really revealing to us who God is and not just what people are like. And we find that God reveals himself often in the context of struggle and trials. So in Genesis chapter 14, a story that we didn't get time to preach a separate week on, but it's a great story. There is a battle between groups of kings in Israel. And so you have five kings against four fighting. And in the end of it, Lot, Abraham's nephew, who we also spent a week looking at, didn't see this story about him, he's captured. So Abraham goes to rescue him, takes his fighting men, rescues Lot, brings him back. And then at the end of the battle, this mysterious guy pops up out of nowhere. His name is Melchizedek, and we don't know much about him except that he is a priest of God and a king of a nearby city called Salem, which will later become Jerusalem. And he steps up and comes up to Abraham and his warriors and says, would you like some bread and wine to refresh yourselves? And Abraham tithes to him, and Melchizedek blesses him, and then, so far as we know, disappears into thin air. And we find ourselves scratching our heads going, who is this guy? What does it mean? And then thousands of years later, we find Jesus, the true priest king, comes to his people and provides bread and wine for them. And they bless him, and he blesses them, and they tithe to him. So we find that kind of thing happening all the time in the story. We find it, uh, the story of Hagar, which we heard with Steve a few weeks back. Surely you are the God who sees me. We've, this is a story about a woman on her way fleeing from her home. She's been driven out. But we also see that it's a story of a God who sees the suffering, marginalized person. We see it in the story of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, where we see that Isaac was about to be offered up as sacrifice until a ram caught in a nearby thicket served as his substitute. And as a result, Abraham named the place the Lord will provide. Because the Lord is the one who knew you were going to need this and put the ram in the thicket before you even got there. Because that's what he's like. He knows what you need before you do. And it makes provision for you. He is a providing God. We see the story is about God. Genesis 28, story of Jacob. We saw it again with Jacob's ladder. Hillary was talking about this story. What happens is Jacob goes to sleep. He has a vision in his sleep of a ladder stretching from heaven down to earth with angels ascending and descending on it. And when he wakes up in the morning, he calls the place Bethel, Bethel, which means the house of God. And he says this amazing phrase, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't even know it. That could be like a tagline for the book of Genesis. Surely the Lord was here and I didn't know it. That's what Shasta, the boy, says in The Horse and His Boy. 
He looks and the, and the lion says, I was the lion. He's like, it was you. The same thing happens in Genesis. And amazingly, thousands of years after this story, Jesus is talking to another young Jewish man who's called Nathaniel. And he says to him, I tell you the truth, you are going to see heavens opened and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You are going to see that I am Jacob's ladder. I am the one in whom heaven comes to earth and earth can reach heaven. I am that person who bridges the two and angels ascend and descend on me. So we look and go, it was you all along. We didn't know it. We see it in Genesis chapter 32. Again, the story that Phil told us. Jacob is stopped at a river crossing and wrestles with a man until daybreak. And finally, after the man has given him a limp and changed his name, Jacob realizes who it is. And he says, I have seen God face to face. And he names the place Peniel, which means face of God. 2,000 years later, we meet another proud young man who has been struggling with God and finally meets him face to face. And he is physically impaired, in this case, blinded. And his name from that point on is kind of changed. He no longer uses his name Saul. He uses his new name Paul. And he spends the rest of his life telling people about how he has seen God's face. But rather than God's face in wrestling with him, he's seen the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We've seen it in Genesis 44, the story of Judah and Tamar, where Judah substitutes for his little brother Benjamin and says, I will offer myself so that you don't have to be captured. And we saw how Judah's lion will one day substitute for us and become our representative so that we don't have to be captured either. So we've gone through this book and seen again and again and again, like Shasta said, really, it was you all along. We didn't even know. And he's just saying to us, I am the lion. I am the priest king, like Melchizedek. I am the God who sees. I am the ram sacrificed for you. I am the Lord who will provide. I am Jacob's ladder. I am the one that reveals God's face. I am the substitute. I am the lion. The book of Genesis is about him. It's about God. Now, on top of those examples, which we've picked up on at times as we've gone through this series, there strike me as two other key stories in which Genesis reveals the character of God. And the first one is a direct appearance in Genesis chapter 18, which hopefully you found by now. If you haven't found it, you probably never will. Uh, Maybe it's been taken out of your Bible. I don't know. Um, But as we read this story, you could look at many things in this story. It's a great promise story. But just for this morning, try and focus simply on the, the alternating between plurals and singulars in the identity of the visitor. Okay, Or, if you like, between threes and ones as we read through this story. Okay, And the Lord appeared to Abram by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant." Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly to the tent and said to Sarah, quick, three seers of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, 
I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I still have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there. What is going on here? Do you notice the alternation? They, he, he, they, they, he. Three, one, one, three, three, one, one. Now, I'm not saying that passage proves the doctrine of the Trinity. It doesn't. It's not quite like that. But what I am saying is that when, in light of the rest of Scripture and what we learn about Jesus Christ and about the Spirit, we go back to this story, we say what Shasta said. It was you all along, and I didn't notice. This painting, you may have seen it before, by Rublev. It's one of the most famous icons in the history of the church. And by the way, I'm not commending icons. I don't think we should use pictures of God for worship at all. But this painting, as a painting... It's extraordinary because it's entitled The Trinity, but its alternative title is The Hospitality of Abraham. Because what Rublev does is he says, this is a kind of a painting of Abraham's three visitors, but in that, surely, we are expected to see the Trinity. And in light of the rest of the Bible, I think that's right. I think we go back to stories like that and say, wow, one who is three and one, one who is both they and I at the same time. It was you all along. And God's saying, yeah, I, I am the lion. That's me. So that's a pretty direct appearance of God. I think you'd agree. You read it in the text. It says the Lord. It's very obviously God. Right, whatever else we may say about that story. But the other key story in Genesis in which we see God revealed is kind of the opposite. It's a story in which God doesn't directly appear in this way at all. And yet I think it's just as much a story about the character of God and as revealed in Jesus Because it's a story in which Jesus is prefigured through a shadow or a type, we call them sometimes. Like The best way of thinking about it is like a silhouette. You might have done this game with friends or even in a pub quiz or something where you see a silhouette of a person, you have to guess who it is. And some of us, um, I'll just say no more than this, some of us have recognizable silhouettes, right? Because of our physical shape or our nose or our mouth or our hair or something, you could tell. Like You have friends like that. You go, their silhouette is obvious who it is. And other people where it's not very obvious. And what we find is in the, in the Bible, there are loads and loads of silhouettes of Jesus. People who, actually the outline is there, but we're missing a lot of detail. But it's recognizably the same story. And we therefore get insight into who Jesus is by reading the story. And we often call that typology. Well, the story I'm talking about is the story of Joseph, which we heard last week. Now, Steve was preaching on Joseph as he told the story. And I love the way he broke it down. He said, we have a story of prophecy And then Joseph gets a prophecy about his future. Then he goes to serve Potiphar. Then he ends up in prison. And he finally ends up in the palace. And that was a great way of breaking down the story. And in each of those four episodes in the Joseph story, we see that we're not only reading a story about Joseph. We're also reading a story which is a shadow, a silhouette of the story of Jesus. Look at it a bit at a time. Chapter 37 of Genesis. Joseph begins. We know that he's favored by his father, like Jesus. He's given a clear sign of glory and honor in front of his family, like Jesus. He's given revelation that all of Israel will come to worship him, like Jesus. That prompts jealousy and hatred from his brothers, like Jesus, 
who then try to kill him when he is out trying to serve them, like Jesus. He is interceded for by powerful figures. In Joseph's case, that's Reuben, saying we shouldn't kill him. And in Jesus' case, that's um, Pilate, because Pilate says, no, I don't, are you sure? I don't think we should kill him. And yet, even then, his brothers say, we will kill him anyway, and decide that that's what they're going to do, like Jesus. He is then, Joseph is then sold for the price of a slave, 20 pieces of silver. In Jesus' day, it's 30 pieces of silver. We can allow for some inflation. But we notice at the same time that the person who mediated to get Jesus and Joseph sold by the price of slave is Judah and Judas. It's even the same name. They then present blood. The brothers then take blood and present it to the father in the case of Joseph, just as Jesus' blood is then presented to the father after he has died for us. And then, of course, you find that Jesus, the blood of that animal is actually the blood of a goat, which is the animal that represents atonement throughout the rest of Scripture from Leviticus onwards. So Joseph, in Genesis 37, represents not just the one who goes down into the pit of death and the one whose blood atones, but also the one who goes off into slavery and will be liberated as a ransom for others. We then go into Genesis 39, and we find Joseph in Potiphar's house, and we see the parallels continue there. Everything that Joseph does prospers, because the Lord is with him. He fights temptation. He wins. But he's nevertheless accused of doing something that he didn't do, and sentenced to prison. Just as Jesus, though he fights temptation and wins and lives a spotless life, is accused of something he didn't do, and sent, obviously, to his death. In prison, we read in Genesis chapter 40, Joseph is in prison between two criminals. One of them is a baker, representing bread. The other one is a cupbearer, representing wine. And Joseph says to one of them, you are going to, be, going to get out of this, and I'm sorry, but you're not. Just as while Jesus is dying, he is crucified between two criminals and says to one of them, today you will be with me in paradise. Does it blow your mind? You just think, this is about that. This is, it was you all along. And he's like, I was the lion. At the end of that, Joseph is vindicated and brought, as we saw, to the palace where he is then in a position to influence and rule the entire world on behalf of the Most High. Joseph emerges from the pit. And it's weird detail in Genesis 41:14, he was shaved and he had new clothes, just as Jesus steps out of the grave with a new face and new clothes. Joseph's appearance is immediately recognized and hailed as good news for the nation and, in fact, the world. And they say of Joseph, can we find anyone else like this, one in whom there is the Spirit of God? And thousands of years later, Jesus emerges from the grave and the world says, yes, we can. There is another one like this, one in whom is the Spirit of God and far, far greater. As a result, Joseph is exalted to the right hand of the Most High Power, who in his world was Pharaoh. And at the right hand of the Most High, he literally has messengers who are sent out in front of him. You can read about it, Genesis 41, 43. Their job is to go before Joseph, crying out to anyone who can hear, bow the knee, bow the knee. The one at the right hand of the Most High is here. And that is what you and I are commissioned to do, to go out into the world on behalf of the one who sits at the right hand of the Most High, saying, you want to bow down to this guy because his wisdom is going to save you, exactly as it did with Joseph. The result of that story is blessing goes to every nation on earth in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. The world comes hungry to Joseph. Joseph is the only one who's figured out that we need to save the food in the years of plenty for the years of famine. 
And the result of that is that the nations come to be fed by Joseph, saying effectively, we don't have any food where we come from. It's all run out. You alone have the food that can satisfy us. And in just the same way, we, the nations of the earth, I mean, just count the nations in this room, it would blow your mind. What we have done is collectively come to King Jesus as he sits at the right hand of the Father and said, we have tried to find food in our own nations and in our own cultures, and it doesn't work. It runs out. It never satisfies. You alone are the bread of life who can satisfy our souls. Please feed us, oh Jesus. That's what we do every Sunday. And at the end of the story, Joseph in kind of the final paragraph of Genesis, looks back and makes a very interesting comment to his brothers. He says, Genesis 50 verse 20, he says, yes, you meant all of this for evil, but God meant it for good that many lives should be saved as they are this day. And Jesus stands not just on Easter Sunday or at any other time in world history, but actually at the end of all things and looks back at all of the evil things humans have done. And he says, you meant these things for evil, but your power to do evil is never as great as God's power to do good, and he meant it for good that many people should be saved as they now are this day. God is everywhere in the book of Genesis. Every story whispers his name to the point that we read every page of it and say, it was you all along. Whether I noticed or not, God says, I am the lion. I am the creator of the heavens and the earth. I am the image of God. I am the snake crusher. I am the ark. I am the rainbow maker. I am the tower breaker. I was the one who chose Abraham. I saw Hagar. I protected Ishmael. I opened Sarah's womb. I provided for Isaac. I wrestled with Jacob. I am Abraham's visitors. I am Isaac's ram. I am Jacob's ladder. I am Tamar's hope. I am Joseph's successor. I am the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I am the priest king in the order of Melchizedek who comes to you when you're desperate and tired and says, here's bread and wine. Be refreshed. Come to me and receive from me because this is my body and this is my blood broken for you. That's Jesus. Isn't he glorious? Isn't he glorious? Father, we thank you for this book and the way in which it shows us riches that many of us have not even seen about the wonders of who Jesus is and what he does. Lord, we thank you not just for the book, but we thank you for the person revealed in it and through it. We thank you for the wonder of knowing God, the one who has fulfilled all of these pictures in one person. We thank you that you have chosen to call us your friends, your brothers, your sisters, invited us into your family, given us your promises, and worked all things for good for those who love you. We thank you and we worship you. Amen. Oh, no, no. <laughs>